And I walk the perimeter because that's what we're training to walk the perimeter. And then I go the left side of the building toward the rear of the building. And then I get to this wall, the division wall that protrudes above the roof line. I step over the division wall and take one step and take a second step and I fall through. So my captain looks over and sees me go through and the ball of fire come out the hole I created. Hey, my name is Grace and I am a law student from Central Indiana. Compelled is a podcast that resonates with the passion I have to help others see how Jesus can transform their lives. These episodes offer tremendous insight on relating to and reaching others in various life circumstances. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and consider sharing it with a friend. I'm Paul Hastings, and you're listening to Compelled, where we use gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Our last episode was with Jurgen and Sean Beck, whose individual journeys of faith were initially separated by an ocean. One grew up comfortably in the United States, while the other was raised in a broken post-war Germany. Yet God brought this couple together for a very special purpose. But just when they thought that they knew what life held for them, a chance encounter at work would change their lives forever. Again, that's our previous episode with Jurgen and Sean Beck. This week, our guest is Cheyenne Caldwell, a young firefighter struggling with how to live for God while living in the world. When suddenly, while battling a roaring fire, he fell through the roof into a raging inferno and immediately knew he was going to die. So gather around, lean in, and join us for another compelling story from the kingdom of God. About three months ago, I was in Southern California recording a series of nine podcast interviews. It had been a long week, and Cheyenne was my final interview, but I'm so glad that we connected. For some quick context, Cheyenne was born in the 70s into a blue-collar family. His mother was an immigrant from Michoacan, Mexico, and spoke very little English. His dad was African-American and came from New Jersey and spoke very little Spanish, but somehow his parents made it all work out. When he was seven years old, Cheyenne's family moved 50 miles east of Los Angeles to a little town called Bloomington. And by sixth grade, Cheyenne had found his first love in life, football. He was quite good at it, and by his senior year of high school, his small team from his little town would eventually end up winning the state championship. Cheyenne was riding high on life, and like many teenagers his age, felt invincible. And while his mother had exposed him early on to Christianity, it just wasn't really his thing. Not that he was hostile to Christianity, it was just that God was more like a helpful afterthought, but not someone who should really shape his life. I always knew God was there. I always knew he was there with me. I mean, there's a lot of things that happened in my life that there's no way he wasn't with me, you know? There's times we went out with my friends and we would do things that probably we shouldn't have been doing. You know, it wasn't foreign for us to go to out on the weekend and party hard, drink hard, get in a fight, and, and by the end of the night, somebody shoot at us. We lived a life that was uh, fun for us, but it, if you look at it in retrospect, stupid and dangerous. And we would make it, you know, every every Monday, we'd come to school and say, hey man, that was a, this, that, and the other at that party. And 
we start planning for the next weekend. Where, where are we going to go this weekend? You know, so that was the life we lived. It was just by virtue of having a close knit group. It wasn't a gang, but we were tight. And uh, and then we were not little guys. You know, we were like full grown men as children. <laughs> yeah, you can imagine. You know, we're and my linemen, my, me as a fullback, quarterbacks, you know, tight ends, running back. We were full of adrenaline. Testosterone. Adrenaline, testosterone, and strength. I mean, we were not little kids. Yeah. So with that, guys are going to want to challenge. And so, yeah, like I said, it wasn't out of the ordinary for for us to get in a fight over the weekend. Around Cheyenne's senior year, some things began changing. He knew he wanted to play football in college and after applying was accepted into the University of California at Los Angeles, also known as UCLA. But before he got there, something unexpected happened. His father became a born-again Christian and was very excited about it. He started talking to me about God and wanting me to commit my life to Jesus. So we started transitioning at that point to go to going to Christian church. But it was my dad and myself were kind of alike where we we're very, very frank about stuff, right? Just in your face. I really have to hold that back myself. But he was like, you need to follow Jesus. <laughs> here's the prayer, pray to accept Jesus. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm hung over right now. What do you want to talk to me about Jesus? He'd he'd come in the morning and wake me up and you need to follow Jesus. I'm like, all right, dad. So he was like that. So he came, you know, with Jesus. He was very forward with Jesus. You know, anybody come in contact with during the 10 year, 10 to 12 year period, he was going to talk to you about Jesus. And it turned some people off. And it, other people were just, it was seeds. And no matter what, if you turn them off or not, it's still a seed, right? So that was him. So that was through my teenage years. So there was exposure, but not commitment. But then the reason I bring UCLA is woven so much into my life and who I am because a lot of things happened there that changed my life. So after coach called me, said, I'm going to play fullback. I get ready to go away to school. And we have a party to say bye and stuff like that. But I go to school. And during fall camp, I come in contact with a group of Christians called the uh, Christians in Action at the time. They had a team chaplain and they would do Bible studies after practice. What drew me there was the seeds that my dad was planting, going to church with my mom. And so I went. And after this first or second week of camp, I went in there and uh, we did a quick little devotional. I don't remember what it was about. But he offered at the end of the time, if you'd like to follow Jesus, and if you, if so, here's the sinner's prayer, and I prayed it. That day was a change. That day was acceptance of who Jesus is in my life. August 15th, 1995 was the date. that I was born again and began to know Jesus. And hung out with those, those guys, the Christian guys, and, and was guided by them. You know, I still was in doing my thing and in my ways and still living half in, half out, right? The world had its impact on me. And really at that point, being a baby Christian, I, I really went along the lines of, you know, the world was real strong at that time in my life. So Jesus, all those, the strongest men in the world was weak in my life. Cheyenne's faith was growing, but slowly. Sometimes he felt close to the Lord and was eager to read his Bible and study and pray, but at other times, it felt like a struggle, and the temptations and lusts of the world were strong. But the Holy Spirit was definitely at work, 
and when Cheyenne would occasionally return home over the weekends, his old high school buddies would swing by encouraging Cheyenne to join them for another night of crazy parties. But that type of lifestyle no longer really appealed to him. Over the next four years, Cheyenne had a successful football career at UCLA. He was one of the strongest men on the team and could bench and squat over 500 pounds. But after graduation, he was unsure if he really wanted to pursue football professionally or not. But over Christmas, Cheyenne heard a sermon on career paths that convicted him and convinced him that a life in the NFL wasn't for him. Instead, Cheyenne decided to become a firefighter. He was driven, competitive, and quickly graduated from Fire Academy. And by 2000, at the age of 23, Cheyenne joined the Phoenix Fire Department. And then just two years after that, he transferred to the Los Angeles Fire Department. And a couple years later, he married his wife, Noemi. His work kept him active and felt rewarding, and his career path looked bright. But all of that would change in an instant in the summer of 2007. So I got the call that I was going to be promoted, and I was going to report to my first fire station assignment as an apparatus operator at Fire Station 26 on July 24th, 2007. Reported to duty that day, already jazzed and in my head thinking, all right, this is going to be the greatest thing I've achieved, the greatest, at this point, the greatest thing I could do, you know. Yeah, I've achieved some things in my life, you know, my master's degree, graduate from UCLA, but this for, for some reason was just like a monumental thing to, to accomplish. And I got to go to Fire Station 26, which for me has always been one of those stations that was like, people want to work there. People want to go to fires. People want to go to work. They're going to go there. So I got promoted and I went to Fire Station 26, first assignment. We uh, had some practice time in the morning, some drill time in the morning. I had a house that we were able to go out and drill on. What I mean by that is go out and practice our ventilation operation, took the chainsaws to the roof and we were able to cut because they were going to demo the building. So we were able to practice our craft and then we um, went back to the station, cleaned up the saws and went on a, on a, on a few runs, calls basically. A couple fire calls were false and then ended up back at the fire station and then uh, started winding down, had dinner, sitting around the, the uh, dinner table, just chatting with the guys. It's about eight o'clock and we get toned out for structure fire. 5111 West Adams Boulevard. And um, it was a little late of a dispatch because it was two calls going out at the same time. So we were a little bit delayed, I think, but we got, all got on the rig. And I, I knew the route I was going to take because I knew I was going to go to Fire Station 26. And I studied the maps beforehand. I knew how to get to the southwest side of the district quickly. And I knew which I had to go the opposite way in order to go that way because of the traffic patterns and stuff like that. The fire station is situated just probably 100 yards north of the 10 freeway, which is a major thoroughfare here in LA. So, knew my route, made my way there. You know, I'm driving down, at this point I'm driving down Adams Boulevard, I'm looking to my left and looking to my right, and I'm seeing these engine companies behind me just following as we lead down. It's like a, like a fleet. If you don't know if you're a military guy, but it's like a fleet of ships just going down the, the sea, and they're all just full bore. And that's how that rigs are coming down the, rig, the, the, the street. You know, we just take up the whole street, lights and sirens just coming down. If you can imagine that, you're looking both your rear view mirrors and you're seeing two rigs out there. And all right, this is it. This is what you signed up for. And the company's on CNR to give a size up, which is their description of what's happening on, on the fire ground. And they describe a one story commercial with fire showing from the rear of the building. Okay, now everything gets amped up a little more because we actually got a worker, right? 
We're not just going and trying to find out what's happening. Something's happening. So at this point, everybody's adrenaline's up, good and bad, right? Good that you're going to be able to do some extraordinary things, bad because you, you're not thinking straight. At least I'm not because I got a lot of things going on, a lot of people to make sure that I keep need to keep safe and uh, make sure this operation goes well because this is my first show, right? So you pull up. It's as described in the size up, and we see it. So you can imagine a, a building, like a commercial front building, a one, it's a one story. And when you look at commercial buildings, they're actually taller than residential, right? You're looking at 10 to 12 foot walls um, with a roof at that height minimum. And then um, like a storefront with doors. But this in particular commercial was in more of an auto shop, industrial shop, closed up front with graffiti on the front gates to the right of the building where they made entry in another building attached to the rear. The street is dark. Um, the easement is overgrown with weeds. The chain link fence is in disrepair. And there's a rolling door to get in that chain link fence. But the building itself, no real entry point there. Not on the front, on the street side. Not on the street side. And then next to that building was another two-story two commercial with a commercial advertisement sign on top of that one. And as you look at the building, the front of the building is intact, but is the rear, you can see orange glow, a huge orange glow to the rear. Because what was glowing was the fire that was coming out of the roof of the skylight on the rear building. So you can imagine two buildings attached to each other with a division wall, and the second building was where the bulk of the fire was. So we pull up, I get out, and I... Um, start to put my outriggers out from my aerial ladder. So this aerial ladder is a 100-foot aerial ladder. Basically, it's a hydraulic ladder that's put into position with hydraulics. So I get out, stabilize the truck, and bring the ladder out of the bed and rotate it over the building, position it so that we can then go up and ascend and get on top of this building. I tell one of my firemen to grab a 16-foot straight ladder to bring us bring with us up because I wanted to get to the second building that was to the left of us, which was a two-story. But I was only going to transition from the first one to that building with the 16-foot straight ladder so that I can make sure that that was not involved later in my operation. So I was thinking along these lines. And when in a fire, there's so many inputs that come into your brain that it's hard to process each one of them. But as I think back and look at that, I look at that input, I said, okay, I was actually processing the fact that I need to get into that building eventually to figure, make sure there's no extension. And then I'm processing the fact, okay, that I'm on, now I'm the first one coming up on this ladder. And then I see the smoke. I was like, okay, chainsaws don't like to really run in smoke because they breathe just like you and I. So let me start my chainsaw here on the ladder so that I can be in the clear and then transition to the smoke and be able to rev it up so that it doesn't choke out the smoke. So I start the chainsaw on the ladder. And I'll get it up there. And I look to my right, and I see my captain is already there. That took me by surprise because he beat me up there. I thought I was quick, but he, got, he beat me up there. He didn't go up the aerial. He went up the ground ladder that was thrown by my firefighters. So in the, with the LAFD, we have operations. Basically, everybody knows what to do on whatever incident comes our way. So our standard SOG for, for us in this particular fire is for me to throw the ground, the aerial ladder, and the firefighters throw a ground ladder, meaning a wood ladder, to the roof line. And then they'll come back and then we'll all ascend the aerial. The 
the captain wanted to get a look, so he went up the ground ladder to give a size up of what was happening there to the incident commander. So he's there already. So I come up, I see him, chainsaw running, look at him, and they gave me a false sense of security. Like, he's already on this roof. It's sound, stable, okay. We're good. So I look at him and I get off the ladder and I go left. And I walk the perimeter, because that's where we're training to walk the perimeter, and then I go along what would be the left side of the building toward the rear of the building. And then I get to this wall, the division wall, which is like 18, maybe 12 to 18 inches that protrudes above the roof line. And I come in about two to three feet, four feet in on that building. On the, now, this would be the back of the building that we ladder. And I step over the division wall and take one step. And I take a second step and I fall through. We'll be right back after this short break. Summer is here, and so is the chance to take a breather from school. And there's a decent chance that the subject your student is most excited to take a break from is math. But it doesn't have to be that way, especially if you're using CTC Math. Their focus is helping your student learn at the pace that's best for them. Every lesson is fully online with interactive questions and clear explanations. And their video tutorials take difficult concepts and break them down into digestible ideas. But here's the crazy part. They have a 12-month money-back guarantee. That's right, you can use CTC Math for an entire year. And if you don't like it, or it didn't work out for you, or if you're just unethical, which as a compelled listener, I hope you're not, then you just shoot them an email and tell them that you'd like your money back and they'll gladly refund your entire purchase, no questions asked. There is literally no risk for an entire year. You can't beat that because their heart is to serve your family. That's why they sponsor Compel so that we can continue creating stories that will bless and encourage your family. And they wanna do the same for your students' math needs. So whether summer is a time for your student to catch up, keep up or move ahead, CTC Math is there. Learn more at ctcmath.com. Again, that's ctcmath.com. As a teenager, I had so many friends whose lives were transformed by attending a Worldview Academy leadership camp. For many of them, it was the highlight of their summer because it was such a spiritually engaging experience. And today, Worldview Academy's mission continues. If you have a student between 13 to 18 and you care about equipping them with biblical truth so that they're prepared to stand firm and engage with the culture, then Worldview Academy is what you're looking for. Worldview Academy's week-long summer intensives cover topics in apologetics, servant leadership, and evangelism, all while building deep friendships with like-minded students. Your student will engage with 25 hours of interactive teaching, addressing questions like, how do I know that the Bible is true? Does God really exist? Who defines what is right or wrong? And what difference does that make in my life? Since 1996, over 42,000 students have called this one of the best weeks of their life. And with 18 summer intensives all across the country, there's certain to be one near you. Learn more and get 10% off your student's camp registration as a compelled listener by using the promo code COMPELLED at worldview.org. Register for camp today at worldview.org while spots are still available. 
And remember to get 10% off using the promo code COMPELLED. Welcome back. After a successful college football career, Cheyenne Caldwell had become a Los Angeles firefighter. He had been a professional firefighter for the last seven years, but because he had just been promoted, this was his first day at Station 26. At this point in time, Cheyenne's faith wasn't really his highest priority. And while he was happy to let Jesus be his savior, Cheyenne struggled with allowing Christ to be his Lord. But while Cheyenne was in no rush to change the status quo in regards to his faith, God had other plans, which just so happened to involve falling through the roof of a raging inferno. I fall through the decking of this now fully involved second portion of the building. Chainsaw in hand, helmet on my head, my breathing apparatus not, I repeat not, on my face. And um, I fall through, like to dive, like you would do dive into a pool, because you didn't, if you would imagine step, trying to step on water, and what would you do? You'd call face plant into your pool, right? That's basically what I did. And that was nothing but paper, decking, whatever. It just, it was, that building was, under demolition by the fire. So I fall straight in. So my captain, who's up there, looks over and sees me go through, and the ball of fire come out the hole I created. This incident just turned into an incident with an incident. I just brought a bunch of mess to this incident, right? I just threw this thing into a whole full tailspin. Underneath me in the building was a fence where he kept his paints, thinners, so on and so forth. They were in a, in a fence off area. Imagine a rectangle fence that's up against the wall that held his solvents and so on. And within any fence, you have upright posts. And for some reason, this upright post didn't have the safety guards on top of it. And there were just like spikes coming up, spikes basically, upright poles that were inside his building. So it was just probably, you know, ragtag put together. And yeah, that's what they were. But where I stepped through and fell, had I stepped two steps to my left, I would have been impaled on that pole, that fencing, and been stuck there, right? So in any structure fire, the upper, the temperature is up in the upper atmosphere, upper portion of, of the fire near the ceiling, it's upwards of 2,000 degrees. At 2,000 degrees, metal expands and turns and torques on its own, right? So that's how hot it is. So what I'm saying is that I stepped through right there, I would have been stuck in that atmosphere. Had I stepped through three feet to my right, I would have fallen straight through onto the concrete with nothing breaking my fall. And I would have been there possibly in a worse condition. But I fell through right in the middle of those two points where there was a horizontal member of the fence, which I fell through. It broke my fall and I flipped over and landed on the ground. So I fell through, it broke my fall, I landed on the ground and now I wake up. Meaning I was probably awake the whole time. I don't know, but I don't know. I know I'm conscious now as I hit the ground. And I'm looking around and all I see is orange everywhere. You're in the fire. Describe to us the difference between how we see movie, you know, yeah. firefighters portrayed versus actual reality. Well, the reality is that like say backdraft, right? And you see uh, my man, He's running through the fire, no no apparatus on his back. He has no face piece on his face and he can talk to his buddy 
and he could talk to um, the junior firefighters and, and they're running through and so on and so forth. Yeah, it doesn't happen. In a real fire, it's so hot that if you're standing up, you will burn your ears, your head, your neck, any part of exposed skin, and it'll start to burn through your turnouts if you stay vertical for any more than a few seconds. The heat in a room when a fire is present will drive you to your belly. And if you don't, you will burn. As far as visibility, it's zero. You have zero visibility. Just pitch black. You cannot see your hand from your face. In a room that's not ventilated now, in this particular situation, once the products of combustion are lifted and you can see past the smoke, you see what's burning, the orange. So this was almost like movie-like, serene, because I could see everything burning. The ventilation was occurring. I, and I created a second ventilation with my body. So I was in there. And the first thing I thought, the reason I bring it up, because the first thing I thought when I was in there was, this is embarrassing. Now, why did I say that? Because that's pride speaking. That was my pride. I told you before, it was a machismo position I wanted to get into, and it is. And we, on the fire department, tear each other apart because we want to get better. But in doing so, we eat, we eat each other up on our operations. So everything has to go perfect. But never fire, there's never a fire that does go perfect. And this one definitely didn't go perfect. But I didn't want my name written to this one that didn't go perfect. So I'm, all my name's attached to it forever. It's your first day on the job, too. Right. First day on this position. There's no excuse. doesn't matter. <laughs> but... That's what I thought. So just imagine the, the odd thought. Really, would you be thinking that in your head if you're dying? Would you be thinking, how embarrassing. You're sitting in the middle. I'm sitting in the middle of a fire. And this is, I just woke up in the middle of a fire, figured out what just happened. And I'm thinking, how embarrassing. So that was my pride speaking. And in life, man, that pride will always come before the fall. And it did in my life. Proud in my position, proud in who I was, overconfident in being the man that I was. And really, I was just a selfish, so-called believer in Jesus. But this was a refining moment. Some say defining, but this is literally refining. Because when you refine an ore or silver or whatever you choose, you got to heat it up and get those impurities out. Then you heat it up again and get those impurities out. Heat it up again and get those impurities out. Well, this is my refining moment. And my second thought was I'm in here all by myself. There's no one in here with me. I'm not getting out. They haven't made entry. The guys are on the roof. I'm not going to get out of here. And the subsequent thought was, Lord, I'm ready. Can you say that? Can you say, Lord, I'm ready? Why is that moment that I spoke of earlier so connected to this moment? The moment I'm referring to is when I accepted Jesus in UCLA. I accepted Jesus on August 15th, 1995. But it's so connected to this moment in this refining, defining moment because I would not be able to say, Lord, I'm ready to go home had I not made that decision earlier. So I tried to get out on my radio didn't get out, meaning try to make communication to call for help. My captain took over the communications for me on the roof, getting the mayday out, calling for help. And um, at this point, I uh, was waiting. But then the 
pain of the burn started. So I started not feeling parts of my body just burning. Right. You can see my scars just burning. It's like, oh, excruciating. I could feel this like getting deeper, deeper, deeper. Just each layer of skin just burning away. I mean, it burned down to my, it burned my tendons off, basically, my, my hands. It, it burned that deep. No matter how much you're protected, it's eventually going to burn through. Everything's going to burn. Everything has an ignition temperature. So, reason I mentioned that because it just was excruciating. Excruciating. Like, oh God, this, this dying hurts. Can you make it quicker? As Cheyenne lay cooking inside the roaring furnace, he contemplated eternity. He told God, whether I'm going home to my wife, Noemi, or I'm going home to you, I'm okay with it. I'm ready. And with that, he knew his time had come and prayed that God would speed up his death so that the pain would go away. But outside that firestorm, word was spreading fast among the fire department, and others had a different prayer. Up the street, another company gets called in. And um, one of my good friends is driving that hook and ladder truck with a captain who was my former captain and a new rookie firefighter in the back. And they knew the rookie was a pastor right, in his previous career. And um, these two guys at the time are not believers, the driver and the captain. They're driving down the western, down to the freeway. And the captain turns around to the rookie. He says, pray. Now, out loud. That might not sound like a big deal to you guys. But for us to pray on a fire apparatus en route to an incident is unheard of. It's something you just don't do. Obviously, this is an extreme circumstance. But for these two guys, one guy was called the rookie killer in his early years. And this captain, who has no knowledge, you know, of his relationship with God, said, pray. And this pastor kid in the backseat of truck 29 was praying for me in route to the incident. Prayer works. Our hazardous materials squad, they're en route to the fire. There's two guys in the back. They're technical guys who look up information en route to the incident. He's able to have a cell phone with them in route. Usually we don't have access to our cell phones in route. He's in cell phone. He calls his wife at home. Hey, babe, get this on the prayer chain. This just went down. Start praying. <sighs> it gives me confidence to know that, you know what? Circumstances can change with prayer. And these folks made it a point to let me know that these specific situations happened where they were praying and prayer moves God's heart. I know it did that day. My captain was on the roof going through his, I mean, this is this is traumatizing for him too. Traumatizing for everybody who's on the fire. And he's he's thinking, okay, what am I doing here? What am I gonna do, what am I gonna do? So he even goes through his Rolodex of what he can do in this position. And he had nothing to pull from. He had no Rolodex card to pull from. So he, he just looked over the edge of the building toward where the fire companies were making entry. And he looked down and he saw a loaded, a charged hose line there. And he told the rookie, who was a first house, first day rookie, to take his drop bag, which is a, a rope, and throw it down to the, to the ground at the entry point and bring the hose line up. And he caused that to happen, brought it up, and then he, he went against everything we've been taught in our department 
which is he took the hose line and he put it in the hole I created and opened it. Now, why do I mention that? Because we're taught that it causes worse of a burn because you're now converting the heat into steam. But in fact, it's the opposite. So I'm here as a test study to show you that no, it actually helped me. And so he opened it up. He wanted it on a straight stream, which is a closed stream, and put it on me, right, from the top. So you can imagine they're on the roof, 13, 14 feet above my head, and they're looking down at me and put this hose line through the fire onto where my body was. He said he didn't want to do it because everything had been taught. But he said, God told me to do this. In his own mind, he rationalized it as, well, at least I can do this so this family can have an open casket funeral. There's no way this guy's going to make it out. That's what they thought. There's no way. This is a line of duty death. So as I was inside, the water was on me, and that burning sensation I told you about earlier immediately ceased. So if you could look at that in a microcosm of where we are in this whole scenario, God, this hurts. Help me. Here's water. Let me cool you. Answer prayer right there, right? <laughs> As the torrent of water made contact with the 2,000-degree room, much of it instantly vaporized into scalding steam and shot back out of the hole Cheyenne's body had made in the roof. But even then, there was still enough remaining water to smother the flames that were ravaging Cheyenne's flesh. But while Cheyenne's body was no longer on fire, his situation was still perilous. More on that after the break. You love Christian testimonies. Otherwise, you wouldn't be listening to Compelled. But imagine if you could enjoy Compelled stories from Christians throughout the ages, including those who've already passed away. Well, that's what our friends at YWAM Publishing are doing through their Christian Heroes book series by retelling the incredible stories of Christians like George Mueller, a man of prayer who ran an orphanage for 10,000 children in England who trusted God to miraculously provide food and shelter for those orphans, sometimes on a daily basis. Or Elizabeth Elliot, whose husband was murdered by the Aka tribe in Ecuador, but chose to forgive and move in with the tribe to share the gospel with them. Or Brother Andrew, who during the height of the Cold War smuggled Bibles to Christians behind the Iron Curtain, all under the noses of communist border guards who could have imprisoned him for life or worse. These are the types of stories that YWAM Publishing is printing, and their books are written for kids ages 10 and above, but frankly, adults love them too. They've published 50 of these biographies so far, and we just partnered with YWAM Publishing to bring you five of my favorite stories. These are the Christians that have inspired my faith and millions of others for decades, which include the three testimonies I just mentioned, as well as Corey Tin Boom and Amy Carmichael. We're calling it the Compelled Christian Heroes Bundle, and I actually worked with YWAM to select these five specific stories, and they agreed to drop the price in half just for Compelled listeners. So it's $30 and includes free U.S. shipping. To buy this bundle for yourself or to give to a friend, visit compelledpodcast.com slash YWAM. That's the letters Y-W-A-M, compelledpodcast.com slash YWAM. And trust me, if you love listening to stories on Compelled, you're going to love reading these stories too. 
If you like to stay up to date with current events, then you'll especially appreciate another podcast I enjoy called The World and Everything in It. It's a daily news program, about 30 minutes long, delivered every weekday morning by Christian journalists from around the world. And they aren't just rehashing the current headlines. They're actually doing investigative, boots-on-the-ground journalism while providing biblical cultural analysis. I started listening to their show about five years ago when we first launched Compelled. And since then, they've become one of my go-to sources for understanding current events from a biblical perspective. But they pull no punches. In fact, they tell the facts just as they are, even when it requires sharing uncomfortable truths. Maybe that's why they're one of Apple Podcast's top 100 news programs. Join me and thousands of other Christians from around the world who listen to the world and everything in it. Just search for The World and Everything in It in your podcast app or visit WNG.org. Welcome back to Compelled. Just moments after Cheyenne prayed that God would let him die so that his excruciating pain would leave, his fire crew had blasted a loaded water hose directly on him disobeying the fire department's regulations. And incredibly, Cheyenne was still alive, but it was unclear if his charred body would last much longer. So companies are still trying to fight fires, still trying to get inside the engine companies. And when this mayday goes down, well then shoot, all right, now they gotta get inside and get me. So my engine captain, who was engine 26, which is part of our company, was making entry. They had brought that loaded hose line to the, that side of the building, but went to the roof. So they, at this point, they say, we're going to go get them. But they went in without a hose line to come get me. Another engine company was in there fighting fire, but they're coming in without a hose line. And they're coming to get me. And he's on the radio, Cheyenne, we're coming to get you. We're coming to get you. And they cut a hole in the door to get in there or force the door. And they got inside. And they made up. They went. So it was in the middle of the building. And they came in. They made a what would be a, a right and then a left and then down a where some work benches were basically. If you can think about like an industry or machine shop where they still metal benches and stuff like that, work benches. I was in between some and they, like I said, dead weight, dead weight, right? So for those who don't, listeners who don't know, like what we wear, it's at least 70 to 80 pounds of gear on top of my body weight at the time is probably 235, 240 pounds. So they're trying to pull out 300 plus pounds of weight between these guys in a fire to get me out. And uh, they did it. They did it. Thank God for those guys. Um, and as soon as I came out, as, as I was crossing the threshold, the doorway into the parking lot, they were pulling me out. I'm looking up. I'm looking like directly up. I'm on my back, so I'm looking up at the sky or the, the top of the building and across the threshold. And I'm looking up at the guys on the roof. And I'm like this, you know, I have my hands out, like looking at myself and almost like in a sign of worship, you know, but just looking at what happened to me. And those guys just up there on the roof looking at amazement, like he's alive. He's alive. They couldn't believe it. And as I share this story, it, it transitions to, and I share with you originally, like this is a life and death. This is really not a, uh, one of those stories, you know, roses and 
whatever prairies this is like okay do you really know where you're going to be when this hits the fan right for me i was in this fire for seven minutes and 10 seconds right seven minutes and 10 seconds for me this transition from knowing who jesus is and following jesus happened in seven minutes and 10 seconds for a lot of folks that i speak to particularly men because their smart heart is men and having them grow along their way in their walk with Christ is this change can happen in you. It's maybe seven weeks, seven years, might happen to 70 years. But just take my example, what happened in seven minutes and know that this transition and progression can occur and will occur and it's occurring in you. So they transitioned me to the uh, the ambulance. I um, tell the guys, you know, can you please call my wife, call my brother, so they can tell my family here. And I tell the guys, hey guys, get ready to intubate because I mean, intubate means put a, tu a tube down my throat because I don't know how much longer I'm gonna be able to breathe on my own. And uh, oh, give me some pain medicine too. <laughs> so I had my wits about me, you know. And the guys did a great job, you know, God bless those. They did a great job. They got me to the hospital and. Did they intubate you on the ride? No, because they kept on talking. So that's another indicator. You don't want to intubate as long as somebody is talking. I told them to get ready because my voice was raspy and, you know, I was in, I was in the fire for seven minutes without any breathing protection on. But God protects you. God keeps you. God just does his deal and like I said, providence and creates miracles and created miracles in order for me to be here and share this story because, yeah, I mean, I was in there for seven minutes, 10 seconds, but yet now I have zero respiratory damage. They, they treated me for it, but I mean, no, nothing. God is good. I fell down that many feet from the rooftop to the concrete floor with the 80 pounds of gear on me, no broken bones. Historically in the fire service, situations like this happen, it's not likely that you're gonna get the individual out. It's, it's, uh, it's more of a body recovery versus a save. But God created a way. He put people in the right places at the right time to do the right things in order for me to make it. I mean, God's protection is real, man. Immediately after Cheyenne arrived at the hospital, he was placed into a medically induced coma for over a week. 33% of his body was covered in third-degree burns, and the swelling was tremendous. In fact, members of his own family couldn't even recognize him until they found other identifying marks on his body. But physical healing was only part of the recovery process. Yet even there, God was still working. Once I woke up, I could not walk. There's a statistic or a number out there, so it's for every day or so that you're not moving your legs and on a bed. It takes like a, a X amount of days to get your legs back underneath you or whatever. But I literally could not take a step out of my bed on day nine or day eight when they woke me up. That was weird. That was scary because I was like, well, am I something wrong with me or I'm just weak or am I what? I don't know. Like you couldn't, the muscles in your body would not respond. Would not, would not handle the weight. I could not stand up. Thank God for the physical therapists. During that time, so I've, so one, I almost died 
in the fire, obviously. But then now in the hospital during during that time under the coma, I was um, on a breathing machine. I caught pneumonia while on the machine. And uh, my wife told me that um, there was a time there I almost died a second time while in the hospital because um, they didn't know if the I was going to start breathing on my own once they extubated or turned the machine off. So that was a tense situation, which she shared with me in trying to turn it off. They were saying, you better breathe. <laughs> You better breathe. <laughs> I breathe. <laughs> yeah, it was a long process. So spent five weeks in ICU. After that, uh, came out. I was told I'd never be able to work again, meaning on the job, fire, fight fire. And so I'm down and out. I'm feeling depressed. I can't go back to work, trying to figure out what I'm going to do with my life. Depressed. Like, man, I can't believe this is happening, you know? And it's the trauma is huge now that with you know nowadays we're talking about trauma. So I wake up every day and before I open my eyes, I just hold them shut and just okay, okay, Lord, it's not real, right? It's not real, it's not real. Open my eyes. Oh, it's real. <laughs> it's real, man. That was constant. Yeah, that was constant. Yeah, the sleepless nights. You would go over the incident over and over and over and over again. Ruminate, 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 ruminate to the point where you can't sleep at night. That was bad. The psychological aspect is almost probably just as bad as the physical. The physical heals a lot faster than the psychological. And I really didn't think about that. You know, it's not till now where I'm thinking, oh shoot, these are big deals. I mean, it's up here in the head that people really go, go down pretty fast. So I learned that, I'm learning and learning now today. But um, with the help, uh, again, my walk, I dug in deeper. I had some challenges uh, regarding my faith and that made me dig, cause I couldn't have, I didn't have answers. So that made me dig deeper and deeper and deeper. Before the fire, like I said, I believed in Jesus. I believed he was my savior. But after it became tactile, he became like, I could touch him like I could touch you, man. He's so real to me that there's no going back. There is no going back. And, you know, I, I started diving into Daniel, the book of Daniel, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? I said, uh, what really happened there, right? And you all know the story. Uh, in, a, in a nutshell, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were told by King Nebuchadnezzar to worship the idol. And they, because they didn't, they were, they were thrown into a fiery furnace. And um, when they were thrown in, the fire was so hot that the, the guards even died. But... As they sat in there, the king said to his, uh, his assistant, didn't we throw three guys in that furnace? And this, the counselor, the assistant says, yeah, we threw three guys in there. But then the king says, well, why do I see four in the furnace? And the fourth one looks like the son of God. And that stays with me, man. Because as I was in my fiery furnace, and I thought I was in there all by myself, I never was. He was with me, protecting my respiratory tract protecting from breaking my bones, guiding the guys to me, bringing me out. He's a good God. Hmm. He's worthy of our praise. And uh, if, if you don't know this, this God, this God man, he's someone you got to know because you don't know when that day is going to come, when this fiery furnace will come in your life. And it might not be as dramatic as this, I know. It might just be that divorce or marriage, you're not trying to make it through. It might be that way we're child. Whatever your fiery furnace is, if you have the security 
and salvation of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will carry you through. It's life and death. With Jesus, you have life. Without him, you don't. Seek him, find him, and follow him. He's going to show you the way. Cheyenne, thank you for your time and your testimony, man. Bless you, brother. God bless you. Take a minute and think about it. Cheyenne fell 13 feet into a 2,000 degree bonfire with over 80 pounds of gear on his back without any breathing protection while holding a running chainsaw. He should be dead. And yet, he didn't impale himself on the fence pole. He didn't crack his skull open on the concrete floor. He didn't cut off a limb or rip open his guts with the running chainsaw. He didn't suffocate to death even though he had lost his breathing apparatus. And he didn't burn alive even though he was in the middle of an inferno. Despite all the ways that Cheyenne could have and should have died, God saved him. And what a wake up call that was. God has been using Cheyenne's testimony to touch others ever since, and it started almost right away. In fact, during his recovery at the hospital, Cheyenne had many conversations with his fire captain, the one who thought God told him to disobey the standard regulations and blast water directly onto Cheyenne's body. His captain was not a Christian at the time, but through the course of so many conversations there at Cheyenne's bedside, he eventually placed his faith in Christ as well. Today, Cheyenne has made a full recovery and is a fire captain himself for the city of Los Angeles. He also leads the Firefighters for Christ chapter in LA. There's also a great short video of Cheyenne's story, which we'll include in our show notes. Just visit compelledpodcast.com and search for this episode. If you've been blessed by the stories on Compelled and would like to create more stories just like this one, then please consider partnering with us financially. You can make a one-time gift or join us as a monthly partner at compelledpodcast.com slash donate. And if you're already a monthly member, then thank you. Thank you for making these stories possible. Today's episode was edited by Will Jackson, sound engineering by Zach Fowler, and our associate producer is my sweet wife, Sarah Hastings. Stay tuned for a sneak peek from our next episode with Steve and Susan Vinton. For the last 30 years, Steve and Susan have fulfilled a unique calling serving as the hands and feet of Christ to some of the poorest and most HIV-AIDS-stricken communities in Africa. I'm your host, Paul Hastings, and you've been listening to Compelled. We'll be back with another compelling story two weeks from now. We'll see you then. But it was there I went, and I saw this little boy. Um, he had no clothes on. He was about 10, and he was le- he was sitting in the dirt and leaned over and drool. He was drooling. He looked so sad. He had sores all over his head between his feet. I thought, is this leprosy? What is this? And I found out the night that we had arrived after that party, I heard screaming and crying in the village. And it was his mother who had passed away that night that we arrived. One last thing before I go, if you'd like to meet up this year in 2024, I will actually be on the road for a few events, either speaking or exhibiting at some conferences. I am still nailing down all the details, but already I know that I'll be at the Texas Homeschool Convention in Fort Worth from April 18th through 20th, the other Texas Homeschool Convention in Houston from May 30th through June 1st, the Home Educators Association of Virginia Convention in Richmond from June 6th through 8th, 
And there's also the chance that I might be at some other events in Louisville, Kentucky and Nashville, Tennessee later in the year, but we haven't finalized those details yet. If you live near any of those locations, then I'd love to meet you. You can also see our latest up-to-date calendar of events at our website, compelledpodcast.com events. And I hope to see you there.